watch the way that you love one another and the way that you greet one another. Um, I'm excited because I think this, the, the ending of this book has the potential to change everything for us, um, in particular those of us that are dealing just with the reality of our own failures, our own weaknesses, and our own sin. And to set, set the stage, I want to read the following. This is the, the first, a little bit of the first chapter of a book by Stephen Furtick called Unqualified. See if you can identify with this account. He says, What comes to mind when you hear the name Stephen Furtick? The interviewer asked the renowned theologian. He said, hey, they're talking about me. I sprinted back into the room where the video was playing, secretly excited to be at the center of attention. I had read this guy's book about ministry and seminary, so I was rather flattered that he knew my name, and we had never even met. I found this particular interview the way many of you discover most YouTube videos, by free-falling into the abyss that is the recommended-for-you sidebar. After I clicked it, I walked away to get dressed for church, and I could hear the interview in the background, but I wasn't really listening until out of nowhere, I heard the sweetest sound of all, my own name. It's always great to be recognized, except when it's not. What comes to mind when you hear the name Stephen Furtick? The theologian sighed, dropped his head signifying that the mere consideration of my name was wearisome. That got the crowd chuckling. Apparently, they knew he wasn't a fan. Long, pained pause, agonized grimace, bone-chilling stare, then the verdict, unqualified. He delivered the four syllables with a disgust, that only underscored the gravity and the finality of his pronouncement. Only the gavel sound effect was missing. No elaboration, no explanation, no qualifiers. My whole life and ministry summed up with a single word, and abruptly the interview moved on. And he goes on to say, that word, unqualified begin to weigh on his soul. Now, most of us will not go through that kind of public humiliation where there is a renowned theologian critiquing our lives, but we all have a battle, at least internally, with the reality of the fact that we want to follow God, that we want to attempt great things for Him. We want to respond to who He is and what he's done, but there is a voice oftentimes that stops the mission before it even begins. It's words that come inside of us that remind us of our own inconsistencies and our own failures and our own sins. Voices that remind us, despite how much we want to believe that God could use us, that we are utterly and totally unqualified. That's the thing that the people of God were going, to, going through in the book of Haggai, and it's exactly that thing that God wants to address in them and for us. To conclude this section, Stephen Furtick says this. He says, But when it comes to more subjective matters, keep in mind that your assessment is not infallible. 
and maybe, just maybe, you are overestimating your shortcomings and underestimating your gifts. Maybe the fact that you don't currently measure up to the expectations you or other people have isn't a deal killer. Maybe God wants to do something beyond your abilities, and He is far less intimidated by your failures and your limits than you are, right? So that's the kind of God that we serve. We're going to see a God that's fully committed to not just restoring the temple, but restoring His people. He's changing the story and the way that they view themselves so that they can more effectively serve Him in the world. This is an account where God reminds the people of God of His faithfulness, that their performance is not the final verdict, but that His faithfulness, that His grace, and that His mercy will always win the day. And that's what we're going to see as we close out the book of Haggai. I'm going to begin by reading Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read verses 10 through 19 aloud. If you're able, would you stand with me as we just give attention to God's words? These are the most important words that will be spoken here today. Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures, but there were 10? When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, but there were 20? I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. This is the good news. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, considered is, is the seed yet in the barn. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray just that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you would help us to um, really travel the distance between time and reality and our own circumstances, and that this story would be more than just words on a page. It would be your word to us that rebuilds us and remakes us. I pray that every soul would have just the courage to believe that God's plan is to bless them. I pray that you would perform this in us, for us, so that we can make your name known. To do that, we need your help. We, this doesn't come naturally to us. It's 
much easy for us to believe that our own stories are over, but we want to see the God that rebuilds and remakes us for his glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the end of the book of Haggai, it may seem a little bit remote at first, but hopefully uh, over the next few minutes you're going to see how applicable it actually is for us as a people. So um, I don't know about your Bible, but mine in verses 10 through 19 says, blessings for a defiled people, right? That's kind of the the caption that's over there. And I think that's a good summary of the end of the book of Haggai. This is a group of people that are aware of their defilement. They are aware of their deficiencies. They are aware of all of the ways that they have disobeyed God. And God is using the end of this book, not just to remind them of their failures, but to bring healing to them and to bring restoration to them so that they would be more effective. So I want to give us a little roadmap for where we're going. The first thing that we're going to talk about is just the dilemma of defilement, right? That is a a real and a present thing for all of us. How can imperfect people represent a perfect God? How do people that consistently fail as much as they get it right represent someone that's beautiful and perfect and holy and righteous? So we're going to look at the, the, the the promise and the dilemma of defilement, and then we're going to look at how God actually addresses this dilemma. It's not just um, he magically sweeps this under the rug. He actually answers his people and he cleanses them. And we're going to look at that. And then finally, we're going to look at a promise that stands for us forever as the people of God. So first, the dilemma of defilement. So these are folks that have been laboring for about 18 years, trying Most of the time in their own strength to see the purposes of God come in their generation. They were at an end of themselves. The temple was in ruins. It was defiled. um, Not just because it was abandoned, but because people from the outside had come in and defiled it. And so the people really were at a crossroads. How in the world can we rebuild and remake this place that's supposed to be beautiful and holy and separate and fit for God? How do we, as defiled people, build a place that's undefiled for the undefiled God? That's what's going on in the end of Haggai chapter 2. And Haggai uses an illustration that, I mean, like literally none of us are familiar with, so you can take a deep breath. It's okay, right? He says, he asked the priest, and these, at least to these folks, this would make sense. He said, if the priests are coming away or somebody's carrying a sacrifice that's been given at the temple and it's holy, like if they carry it in their shirt or if they are, are carrying it home with them, would that itself become holy? And they say, no. And then they say, well, what about if you come in contact with a dead body? Would that make you unclean or defiled? And they said, yes. And so the whole point of all of that is only God can make things holy, and we ourselves can only make things unclean. So there is a real dilemma for us as the people of God. All we are capable of doing is defiling things, but God does not want that to be the end of the story. God wanted them to look back and really to, to remember that the place that they had been was really unfruitful. It was really unsatisfying as they were looking to build their own kingdom, to do things for their own namesake instead of his. And he's reminding them that there is a better way to live. Not to shame them, but to heal them. But this idea of being defiled 
is a universal human experience. Right? We all have things in our stories and in our past, sometimes in our present, that we think color the future, that remind us that we are dirty, that we are unclean. Before we even begin on the, the mission that God has for us to see renewal brought to the city, we're reminded of our own limitations and our own failures. And it's easy for us in those moments to want to give up before we even begin, right? What we're going to talk about today is the reality of guilt and shame and defilement that keeps so many of us from doing the things that we actually want to do as we follow God. But what we're going to encounter is a God that absolutely is committed to restoring and rewriting the narrative of his people so that failure and sin and shame is not the end of the story, but his grace and his mercy and his promise to bless them will define them both now and forever. Now this is deeper than shame, but shame um, kind of gets at the, the root of the relational defilement that's going on here. In his book, um, Shame Interrupted, Ed Welch says this, and I think this will help us get our minds around what's going on in this passage and our own experience. He says, Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Shame connects three human experiences. You feel like an outcast. You don't belong. You feel naked while everyone else is walking around with their clothes on. You feel exposed and vulnerable. You are seen, and what others see is not pretty. You feel unclean. Something is wrong with you. You are dirty. Even worse, you are contaminated. There is a difference between being a bit muddy and harboring a deadly, contagious virus. Everyone in this room at certain points in their life, almost every day or every week is tempted with the reality of shame. It can be something that you did. It could be something that was done to you. It could be something that was spoken over you. It can be something that you just cannot let go of. It's that very thing that God wants to address for all of us today. He wants to remove the burden of guilt and shame and restore our stories and rewrite them in a way that we are holy and beautiful and just and righteous in His sight so that we can give that gift away. Now, the good news is that that God doesn't just magically wave a wand and deal with our guilt and shame. He actually addresses it at its core. And so, um, we looked last week a little bit at the book of Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah and Haggai are written to the same group of people at the same time. So we're going to do a case study of the high priest Joshua, who was the spiritual leader of all the people of Israel, and we're going to see how God deals with his defilement so that we can understand how he deals with our defilement so that we can walk in freedom and joy. So uh, go ahead and turn right a couple of pages to Zechariah chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It also will be on the screen. This is how God deals with the defilement of his people. Zechariah chapter 3, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, 
and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing by before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. This picture in Zechariah chapter 3, I love it for so many reasons because it's so real and it's so descriptive of how so many of us live our lives. This is a courtroom. We have Joshua who is the spiritual representative of the people of God. He's standing in the presence of God. He is dirty. His garments are soiled. A lot of scholars believe that he's actually covered in excrement. So, I mean, this is not just he fell in the mud. This is, he is both ritually and ceremonially unclean. And that's just a picture of where the people of God were at this point in time. They were separated from God because of their defilement. But not only is Joshua in this picture, we have a picture of Satan, whose name literally means adversary. And his full-time job, the book of Revelation says, is to accuse the brothers and sisters, the brethren, day and night. And this is a picture of that. That is his most powerful weapon, is to draw attention away from who God is and what he's done, and to remind the people of God of their failures over and over again. He is the accuser of the brethren. We don't often talk about this But this battle, this courtroom drama is relentless for most of us. We are constantly dealing with the reality of our own defilement, our own guilt. And most of us, if we're honest, spend most of our time trying to clean ourselves up just a little bit, right? If I could just pray a little bit more. If I could just read the Bible a little bit more. Maybe then I would feel more acceptable to God. This passage is in the Bible to help us to see how God actually views us. The reality of the accusation of the people of God is an all-out assault of evil to keep us from doing the things that God has actually called us to do, right? So what would you do right now in your life if the voice of accusation could cease? You're welcome. There you go. What would you do if the accusation of your soul could cease? What kinds of things could you imagine? Who would you want to assure? Although accusation is an all-out assault of evil, it is not the only voice in this passage. There is another one that appears in this story. It is the angel of the Lord, and oftentimes in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is an Old Testament picture of Jesus. He says, the Lord rebuke you. 
right? Yahweh rebuke you. Your thoughts and your accusations have no merit here. So in this picture, there is Joshua who is being condemned. There is an accuser. And then verse 7 says there is another voice. There is a voice that brings assurance. And what's so beautiful about this assurance is it's not just legal fiction. It's not just um, God speaks one thing and changes everything. This is actually God getting to the root and the core of the defilement of the people of God. Listen to how he addresses it. Joshua is dirty, verse 4, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments away from him, And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's clean clothes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So when they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. So you have this picture. Joshua, dirty, defiled, representative of the people of God. And God speaks directly to that and says, I want you to take away the filthy garments and I want you to give them something that's clean. Right? This is a picture that the New Testament sees as an exchange. Our sin for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is an Old Testament promise that we do not have to be defined by our own failures and our own sins, that we get to wear these beautiful, bright, stunning clothes that are given to us as a gift by Jesus. And we're meant to have this as the picture and the foundation of our mission as a church. So how does God use sinful defiled, broken, imperfect people to represent him. He takes their brokenness. He takes their sin. He takes their shame and he exchanges it for something better. The New Testament says it like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Right? This isn't legal fiction. This is Jesus Christ laying down his life, taking on in his very body and his very person our own sin and our defilement. That is the good news of the gospel, that God deals with it at its root and as its cause. And we get a, we get a new identity and a new status as the people of God. So God is here this morning to say to you, <laughs> despite all of your defilement, despite all of your sin, despite all of your shame, You are clean. You are chosen. You belong to Him. And His righteousness and His clothes define you, not anything that you have done or things that have been done to you. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller deals with just this reality that most of us tend to live most of our lives inside the courtroom. I want you to I want you to really try to take this in because this is where this becomes really real and really practical for us. Tim Keller says this. He says, Do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? In Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance. It's not the performance that leads to the verdict. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Or take Romans 8.1, which says, Therefore, For there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 
in Christianity, the moment we believe God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into His family. In other words, God can say to us, just as He said to Christ, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's the good news of the Gospel for us as the people of God. He is pleased. We can offer sacrifices. We can go on mission because He loves us. We are no longer defined by our failures. Now listen, this is how this happens. How? Because Jesus Christ went on trial instead. Jesus went into the courtroom. He was on trial. He took the condemnation we deserve. He faced the trial that should be ours so we don't have to face any more trials. Maybe you're in a different position here this morning. Maybe you believe the Gospel. Maybe you've done so for years. And this is a big but. Every day you find yourself being sucked back into the courtroom. All I can tell you is that we have to relive the Gospel every time we pray. We have to relive the Gospel every time we go to church. We have to relive the Gospel on the spot and ask ourselves, what are we doing in the courtroom? We should not be there. The court is adjourned. All right. Forever, the final verdict has been spoken over the people of God. It was spoken by Jesus as He gave up His life on the cross. It is finished. It is finished for us. We stand righteous. We stand forgiven so that we can go to the world and offer forgiveness and peace. It is no longer based on what we do or what we have not done. It is based on Jesus Christ and His record on our behalf. Court is adjourned forever. So this is what we have to do. We have to be, as the people of God, we have to learn to live in our status. Right? So, you don't have to answer out loud, but which picture do you more identify with? Is it Joshua the high priest who's dirty, defiled? Or do you more identify with the, the status that he has with the new clothes and new vestments? So I want to tell you a story how this became real to me. It was uh, 2007, and I was leading a, a mission team to New Orleans. And we were helping uh, after Katrina, and... I, I was staying with this family. Uh, part of the reason we were there was because Katrina, uh, a lot of the efforts were cleaning up places and getting people back in their homes, but a lot of people didn't even come back to their homes. So, like, there would be, like, two houses on a street where people lived in, and then there would be, like, ten of them that were just totally abandoned. And so, like, the, it doesn't take very long of not mowing your lawn for that to get up. And so we would just go in to minister to the people that stayed, uh, we go in and cut the grass and, and try to connect them to the love of God. So I'm staying with this couple. I think I've been a pastor for, you know, a year and a half, maybe two years. I'm not sure. And I was saying real spiritual things like, I'm doing a whole lot better than I deserve. And I'm the worst sinner that I know. And I was trying to imitate someone, honestly, that I thought was godly. And I thought, you know, it was really good. And, and, and I was kept saying this to this lady that was... I was leading this team of young people. And she pulled me aside and she said, do you think that you are a sinner who occasionally gets things right? Or do you think that you are a saint who occasionally gets things wrong? Now I knew at that moment it was God speaking to me through this woman. I wanted to argue with her and for my identity being a sinner. 
And that put me really on a journey and a trajectory over the next couple of years where I studied the New Testament and everything that God had to say about His people. And over 200 times, He declares over His people, you are saints. You are holy ones, right? And there's two or three that are kind of debatable where you can call the people of God sinners. And so I I just remember in that moment that God was saying to me, and I think there's so many of us in that boat, if you primarily view yourself in in view of your weaknesses, in view of your sin, like that's what you're going to live out. That's the story that you're going to live out. But as you begin to believe that you're righteous and you're a holy one, God can continually set us free. So we're clothed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now I just want to close out the book with a couple of thoughts. Turn back over to Haggai chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the, king, the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will make you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. I will make you like a signet ring. I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, I'm trying to make this simple and concise so we can finish. There's this picture of Zerubbabel who was the political leader. He was aware of his own deficiencies, his own failures. And God says, I'm going to move heaven and earth. I'm going to take all the nations. They kind of are in my hands for my purposes. I'm going to move them so that I can bring restoration and salvation to you. And Zerubbabel really is a picture. It says that his life is a signet ring. Um, That's just a picture. You may have seen this in a movie sometime. A signet ring, uh, a king would put his seal like in a a wax, in a scroll, so that it represented his own signature and his own authority. And God was saying to Zerubbabel, I'm going to rebuild you and I'm going to remake you. I'm going to make you um, so that you're able to accomplish this. And it's going to stand as a promise for all time. And we, we talked a little bit about this this summer. Zerubbabel uh, was a descendant of King David, whom God made a promise that there's always going to be someone from your line that sits on the throne. And 13 generations later, you can read the, the book of Matthew, his great, 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 on down the line, grandson was Jesus of Nazareth, the one that would come into the world instead of being born into a palace, was born into a manger, instead of bringing the sword, laid down his life to bring us peace. This is a promise that points us forward to Jesus, and it helps us to understand that failure will never be the final word for the people of God. He's always working. He's always moving history towards its appointed end. And as we witness his faithfulness and his promise to restore It's supposed to stir us up to want to act. We don't just receive this gift in a vacuum. God's building us together as a group of people so that we can give this love, 
this freedom and this joy away. And so that's, that's my prayer for us as gospel communities. That's my prayer for us as a church, that we would be able to give the good news of Jesus away over and over again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us in these moments to appropriate our status as sons and daughters, as forgiven ones, as saints, as those that are clothed and clean and righteous. I pray that you would rewrite the narrative arc for our stories that we would no longer be defined by things that we've done, things that we failed to do, or things that have been done to us, but we will be defined by your story so that we can give your gospel away. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That God's put this dream in your heart. I think he wants to encourage you that the silver belongs to him, that the gold belongs to him, and he is able to provide and to fulfill his promise and his plan to you. And then, um, this is where this gets to Jesus. He says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this temple, I mean, by any objective standard, fell well short of Solomon's temple. But what Haggai saw was this day that one greater than the temple would come. That Jesus would come and on the the Feast of Tabernacles, he would invite people that were thirsty to come to him and to drink living water and say that out of them will flow rivers of living water. That he would come to the temple and that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. That's what Haggai chapter 2 points to. And so it's this invitation for us to consider what a privilege that we have that the Spirit of God has been poured out on the people of God. Jesus said it was better that He would go, that He would ascend to the Father so He could send the Spirit so that His image and His power and His majesty could be displayed in all of the earth. The latter glory shall be greater than the former. We get to experience this right now, and we get to labor in light of it over and over again, that God promises to show off His glory through His people. So this is an invitation for us to love to be a part of the people of God. This isn't just an individual thing. This is us together thing where God shows off His power and His glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You that you use our limitations to show your power. Even though that's scary to us and we can feel vulnerable and exposed, that because of who you are, the Lord of hosts, we stand secure in who you are, in your presence and your power. I pray that you would teach us to value coming to an end of ourselves. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the small things because you are a God that makes things grow. We trust you to work. I pray that you would right now, by the power of your spirit, that you would comfort weary souls, that you would encourage discouraged souls, and that you would, for all of us, remind us that we belong to you and that you long to show off your glory in and through our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.